in our Kriya Yoga tradition, we have um, a number of spiritual masters, great teachers who have uh, explored, done this inner exploration, come into the awareness of what they are, their true nature, literally become masters of consciousness and awareness. And then from that advanced enlightened consciousness, been able to share their insight with their disciples and devotees. And some of those disciples have also become masters, advanced. And so in this way, this tradition has been passed on from teacher to student, guru, which means teacher, dispeller of darkness. So from the guru to the disciple, which is disciple means basically learner. Um, to Latin word for learner. So the teacher and the learner, the guru and the disciple have this relationship. Information and consciousness is shared, is passed along. And, and so we have this unbroken tradition which goes back to uh, the first person in our lineage who is Mahavatar Babaji, number one here or Mahamuni Baba, Babaji. And so Babaji was um, a traveling renunciate. So he wandered the foothills of the Himalayas and even down into the Ganges Plain. Uh, there are several stories about him, but no one knows exactly because he was very private. And um, he was so private that he, no one even knew his name. Baba means father, and Baba G means revered father. So we attach G, and that means that's a, uh, an indication of reverence. And so he's just known by this name, Baba G. Uh, wasn't important what his name was. We don't know where he grew up, uh, when he was born. Everything is a little bit... Uh, mysterious, enigmatic about Babaji. Uh, it is rumored, that this, they say, that he lived for more than 100 years, maybe 300 years, 400 years. And while this may seem really remarkable and difficult to understand from our Western mind standpoint, uh, there are stories and procedures uh, that have been documented uh, in in uh, yogic culture, and one of these is referred to as kaya kalpa, and through kaya kalpa it is possible to actually go into deep seclusion. Uh, and the accounts of this that I've read, uh, we're talking about uh, six months. Uh, so a small hut is built. The the individual would go into this hut in the dark and stay there for six months. And they would have an attendant bring them uh, some herbs and a little bit of uh, food, a little bit of nutrients. But basically, the person in the hut that was going through this procedure did not see anybody, did not talk to anybody, did not have any distractions. They just sat by themselves for six months. And it said that in the beginning, for days and days, it was mostly sleep, just sleep. And in between sleeping, they would come get up, have a you know, little bit to drink, uh, a little bit of small amount of food, and meditate and contemplate. And so it's almost like returning to the womb. And it is said, the reports that I've read from individuals that, that underwent this, um, it is said that after six months, um, well, actually after a few months, uh, they would start some mild hatha yoga and, you know, a little bit more uh, interaction with themselves, but they were still totally in solitude. No outside person, no communication, just resting with themselves. And then it said that after six months or so, uh, that they would come out and that they had been returned to a much younger age. So the individuals that underwent this procedure were in there anywhere from 70 to 80 years old. And when they came out, they looked like they were 40 years old. They had grown a third set of teeth. 
They had uh, their hair had come back and was uh, dark and lush. Uh, skin was uh, supple and soft, and they looked like they were literally 20 or 30 years younger than when they went in. So if you can imagine, just imagine what it would be like to be completely quiet with nothing to do uh, and except to rest and contemplate for all this time and how much rejuvenation the body would be able to go through. So, so it's possible that Babaji was uh, knowledgeable about these procedures and actually was alive and kept his physical body uh, uh, vital on the planet for a very extended amount of time. At any rate, um, our story begins, really our tradition begins, when the second person in this lineage, that is Lahiri Baba, or as Yogananda referred to him, Lahiri Mahashaya. Mahashaya means large-minded, great-minded. Um, and Lahiri Mahashaya was transferred to Raniket, that is in the Himalayan foothills. It's kind of north and a little bit northeast of Delhi. Um, and so he was transferred there in 1868. And uh, his function, his job was uh, as a clerk. So he worked for the British military and had his department where he, where he was a clerk was responsible for um, building roads and procuring supplies for the military. So, uh, so he was transferred to Raniket and here's where he met Babaji. I know another note is about, about Babaji. Um, uh, he was a renunciate. That means that he had left society and he had left to go and live on his own and to become more and more attuned, more and more awakened to his essential nature. So he was a hermit. He was one who stayed alone or occasionally would have some disciples, some devotees who would follow him uh, later on in his life. Um, and he traveled from the area around Raniket, uh, Dunagiri, uh, uh, Pandakola Mountain, um, which is where his cave is said to be uh, in this area, and all the way to Badranath. So there are uh, there's a pencil sketch in Badranath of uh, this individual who we believe also was Babaji, who used to visit there on a regular basis, and possibly down into uh, uh, Vrindavan, which was the birthplace of Krishna. There are some temples there to, that are uh, in honor of Harakan Baba, which uh, some think were the same as our Babaji. So, so he, he didn't stay in one place for a long time. He, he came to, to where he would study and where, or where he would work on his tapas, his own self-discipline and inner work, and he would stay for a time and then move to another place. And the, the location where uh, Lahiri Baba met him was uh, at, in this, uh, near Raniket at Dunagiri. And the reason that Babaji was there um, was because there is a temple on the top of Dunagiri Mountain, or some call it Dronagiri. Uh, there's a, a temple there, which is... Uh, very, very old, very ancient temple. This is a very, a very strong, spiritually um, juicy kind of a place. Uh, it's right on top of the mountain. And this temple has been there, they say, for a couple thousand years. It's been rebuilt several times, but and is currently, you can go uh, climb the 300 steps, you know, up to the temple and visit there. Um, and so uh, the reason that Babaji would have been visiting this particular area was because this Dunagiri temple was there. Um, and because these very sacred, very strong, spiritually oriented places were places that were, would attract um, these renunciates, these yogis, uh, where they would go and practice. And so 
So it makes perfect sense that because Babaji's cave, the place where they, they say Babaji's cave is, um, is just a, a couple of miles from the peak of Dunagiri, uh, where the Dunagiri temple is. So it's very close. And this would be a good reason for him to be in this area. Also, his cave is on Pandakoli Mountain. And this Pandakoli Mountain, uh, Panda is from the Pandavas. That is the, the, the group in the Bhagavad Gita that were sent into seclusion. They were sent to, uh, for 12 years, they had to stay away from town before they came back to take over their rightful position as the king and rulers of the, of the community. This was part of what was behind the, the battle, which is described in the Bhagavad Gita. So the Pandava brothers lived on top of this mountain. This is the legend, Pandakoli Mountain. And this is where Babaji's cave was. So there's a lot of very kind of interesting things happening around this area in the Himalayas. And then also in legend in the Ramayana, where, uh, where Ram's uh, wife Sita has been abducted by the demon Ravana down in Sri Lanka. And so there's a great battle that takes place between Rama, Rama and his uh, number one general, Hanuman, the monkey-headed uh, god, uh, against Ravana. And there's a, a point where uh, Rama's brother, Lakshman, becomes mortally wounded, and they need some special herb in order to bring him back. And this special herb only grows in one place the same place, Dunagiri Mountain. So Hanuman flies up to this area and the, the mountain range there is kind of like a, a U-shape. It's almost like a little horseshoe. So Hanuman goes up and he can't identify the herb. So he just grabs this whole mountain and flies it down to Sri Lanka so that they can, so they can get the herb that they need to, um, to restore Lakshman. So this area has a lot of legends and um, interesting stories that go around it. And, and so this is where Babaji was when Lahiri Mahashaya was transferred to Raniket, which is uh, a few miles, you know, within 10 miles of Dunagiri. And, uh, and it's interesting, when I, when I visited the Dunagiri temple, um, just before you go up the final steps to the temple, there is a big tree and it has kind of a little short wall built around it and a little opening and there are two stones and it's a little shrine. There's incense and people put flowers and it's a little spot of devotion. And this little shrine, these two stones represent Babaji and Lahiri Mahashaya. And there is a sign on this little uh, next to this little tree that says this is where Babaji and Lahiri Mahashaya would meet uh, while Lahiri was there. So, so those are interesting connections. So, so now we'll move on to Lahiri. His, his name was Shyamacharan Lahiri. And Shyamacharan, um, when he was young, was very precocious, very, uh, you know, very smart, intelligent. Um, and, and just an, an avid reader and learner. Um, and he was very athletic. Um, so he, you know, he liked to go swimming and, and uh, you know, move, move the body. And every day after school, he would come home and have a little snack and then go to the temple nearby and have a, and, and chant and uh, do his puja, his devotional service. So he's very spiritual and a very good student and very quiet and, in, you know, stayed in his own space, kind of uh, introvert. Um, and in school, he learned several languages. So he had mastered um, Bengali and Hindi and uh, Urdu and Farsi and you know, several languages. So he was very, very smart guy. Um, when he was very young, um, just a few years old, uh, his father had a, a bit of a challenge. The, there was a big flood 
and the flood kind of wiped out the house and knocked down the temple that is that uh, that Lahiri's father had built, and so he had to move to from just north of Calcutta in the Bengal area had to move to Benares, and in Benares this is where uh, Lahiri's step brothers and sister were living. So father mother had his mother had passed when he was very young and so now father took him and relocated to Benares and there they lived with the stepbrothers and stepsister together as a family and uh, and then um, when Lahiri graduated from high school um, it was difficult to find a job now this is you know this is a time when the um, the Far East India Trading Company is kind of in charge of two thirds of India. Um, they have these deals with all these uh, uh, rajas, these kings and princes, and and caliphates, and so so they are uh, partially running the country and partially, you know, exchanging. It's it's a business. They're taking goods and services in exchange for military protection of these individuals. So it's kind of a, you know, interesting time. And, and in 18, about 1849, 1850, there was this, this revolution. Um, many of the Indians just, they had had enough of being run by this company uh, from this foreign company from Britain. So they revolted and this big revolt uh, caused the East India Trading Company to come in with their military and finally Britain itself said this enough you know you guys have been you're not doing well here and you're kind of taking advantage of these people and things are kind of falling apart and so the British government took over the, the rule of India from the Far East India Trading Company and and sent their military now instead of the india the east india trading company's soldiers their mercenaries uh, now the british government was sending their soldiers and their people and so uh, so in around 1850 um, the british started to create an infrastructure so they started to put in telegraph lines for communication they started building roads they built railways uh, the railroad from Benares to Delhi did not exist until 1866 or 1867. So, um, so this is the, the British government is doing all this. And they also started to build roads and military bases further from the Ganges Plain, from the main interaction um, up in the Himalayan foothills. And so one of these hill stations was Ranikhet. So Ranikhet was designed, number one, to be uh, a, a center there so they could, you know, hold the fort kind of and keep the control over that area. But also it was in the Himalayan foothills, it's slightly elevated and a little bit cooler and it can get very hot in India. And so this was a place they could send their soldiers for vacation and also to recover uh, as well as having a presence. So they were beginning to build this Fort to build this uh, encampment in Raniket, and this is when Lahiri Mahashaya had been been hired for the British military to help as a clerk because he was very literate. He could read and write in several languages, and so this put him in a good position to be able to assist with that. And he was transferred several places. I mean, he didn't stay in Benares for a long time. He would he would be transferred here and transferred there. But the family stayed in Benares, and so um, and so he was transferred to Raniket, and uh, and while there, um, he had time. His job was to stay in touch with the British and let them know what was happening. So he would have to write, you know, reports. But in between writing reports and helping to supervise the road building a little bit, he had plenty of time, and so it was on one of the. One of the times when he uh, had some extra time and he would go hiking up in the in the hills there and it's beautiful and of course he was also very spiritually oriented from when he was very young 
And so he had, I'm sure he had heard about this Dunagiri temple, and this would be why he had left from Ranakat and made this long hike, this long trek uh, up through the mountains to visit this sacred place. And it was there, I'm convinced, this is not nobody else's story, but, but I, being there, I could see how this would come together. Um, and so being on his way to Dunagiri Temple or at Dunagiri Temple, this is where he met Babaji. And this meeting uh, was uh, auspicious because Babaji was able to teach Lahiri Mahashaya, Shyamacharan, was able to teach him the techniques and the procedures that, that renunciate yogis had been using for a very long time. So they were into some very intense internal discipline, some you know, long meditation and internal processes that they could use in order to help focus attention and allow awareness to expand. And so Babaji taught Lahiri Mahashaya many, many of these techniques. Um, and in the process, um, Shyamacharan Lahiri was, was very, uh, very focused and very had had a very strong feeling for the need for education. So he was a, a teacher at heart. And back in Benares, even though he made very little money, just barely enough to keep his family together, um, he had helped to found a high school in the Bengali Tola. That's the Bengali section of Benares. Remember, Bengal is way over in Calcutta. It's way over on the east end of India. And, and uh, Benares, or Nasi, is in the Hindi-speaking part of India. So, so there is a little ghetto, there's a little section there in Benares where all the Bengalis live together and hang out and can talk to one another. And so in this Bengali Tola section, this is where uh, Lahiri helped to found a high school. He had some uh, contacts, some individuals that, had, that were wealthy, that had money, that could afford to help fund this. And so they put together a Bengali high school in the Bengali Tola. And Lahiri served as the secretary administrator of this for many years. And this was long before he met Babaji. Um, and of course, by that time, when he left to meet Babaji, he had uh, already uh, a family. They had bought a house, uh, uh, even with his meager salary. His wife, uh, Kashimoni, was uh, frugal and, uh, you know, a great housekeeper and a great raiser of kids. And because Papa, Shyamacharan, was off doing his work and sometimes having to be gone for several months at a time. Uh, Kashimoni really kept the family together and kept the house together. Um, and so, um, so, so throughout all this, um, Shyamacharan was very much um, a supporter and, and, uh, and understood the value of education. So when he's talking with Babaji and learning these procedures that are mostly and oriented for renunciates. I mean, this is these are intensive processes where you really need to have the time and the intention to be able to follow through. And so Lahiri asked if it was possible for him to teach some of these uh, processes, these procedures, to householders, to folks back home who could take advantage and be and you know benefit from this. And so, in the course of their discussion, Babaji agreed. Um, and explained, taught Lahiri how to initiate, the procedure to use to initiate, and taught him many of these meditation techniques and procedures and things that could be useful for householders, for regular individuals, to be able to experience higher levels of spiritual awakening. And so after only a month or six weeks, um, arrangements were made for uh, Shyamacharan to return back to Varanasi. Uh, he, had, he had become ill, actually he contracted some, uh, an illness there, and so was able to get medical leave to go back home. And when he returned home, he of course recovered, and then he began teaching. And this was not in the, 
in a in a large public venue. This was very small, very gentle, person by person. Um, uh, he was still uh, uh, Shamacharan was still very, um, you know, much uh, very introspective and very quiet and not demonstrative. But when he saw someone that he thought maybe able to take advantage of what he had learned, he would share. And they say the first person that he initiated was the, first, the, the, the fellow who sold flowers outside of the temple nearby, the little temple that he would go to. So this was a very simple person, uneducated, uh, illiterate, but it's been very sweet, very devotional. And so, so Shyamacharan explained to him some procedures that he could use in order to you know, accelerate his own spiritual awakening. And then as time went by, uh, individuals would tell their friends and they would come and, uh, and ask for uh, clarification, for uh, you know, lessons, and also for initiation. And Shyamacharan would always say, you know, focus on your own practice. Don't talk about this. Don't tell people what you're doing. Don't tell people that I'm your guru or your teacher. Just practice. Do what you know you need to do and, uh, and allow this process to unfold naturally. Striving, striving, one day we accomplish. And so in this way, uh, he continued his service with the military uh, in order to, to make a little extra money because he really didn't get paid much. Uh, the British weren't paying very much, but a little. And so he also uh, served as tutor uh, he would. Uh, he worked with some of the uh, British workers that, that were at the same office that he was at, and was teaching them Hindi and Bengali um, in exchange for some money. And then he also served as a tutor to um, to some very wealthy people's children. Uh, and he continued to do this even after he retired from his service as a clerk. Uh, he continued to serve as a tutor. And so this was just help, you know, put food on the table. He has five kids and his wife, you know, would occasionally be complaining about the fact that we don't have enough money. What are we going to do? You know, we need to feed these kids and educate them. And his response would be, pray to Lord Vishwanath. Surely he who maintains the universe can take care of a small family. So, <laughs> so this was his approach. And so over the years, uh, more and more individuals would come. Uh, he would open his parlor, his room uh, in the evenings and folks would come in and he would talk about um, different texts. Uh, his, his favorite was the Bhagavad Gita. So they would read and discuss the Bhagavad Gita and he would, uh, share his insights uh, with his disciples, with his students there. And they say that uh, over his lifetime, he initiated probably 4,000 people in this very quiet, unassuming way uh, with no programs, no announcement, no publicity, just simply teaching one after another. And those who found, found it beneficial, those who found it useful would bring their friends and in this way, he would have more and more disciples. Several of his disciples were very highly realized. They were uh, authorized to be teachers, to be gurus themselves, as well as um, having developing disciples and and uh, and teachers that came from them. So there was uh, this growing tradition that moves out in many different branches from Lahiri Baba uh, and the one that we are most attuned to, most uh, <clears throat> aware of here is the next fellow on our line here, which is Swami Sri Yukteswar. And Sri Yukteswar was born in Serampore, which is just outside of Calcutta. If you go, uh, if you go to Calcutta and follow the river, down river, uh, uh, a couple miles, you come to Serampore, which is kind of on the other side of the river. So, so he was born there to a wealthy family 
Uh, his the, the family had um, uh, many rentals. They had uh, properties that they would rent out, and the father had a business of some kind, which which I've not been able to find out what that business was. Um, but uh, but Priyanath's father passed away when he was still very young, and so mother took care of collecting the rents from the tenants and also running the family business. Uh, Priyanath was also very precocious and very, he was just a, one of these people that was just so focused on learning anything that he could possibly, uh, you know, assimilate and learn. He was interested in everything. So he was interested in uh, how things worked, how individuals worked, what was going on. Uh, and he was just an inveterate researcher and studier, um, even when he was very young in school. So uh, they say that when he uh, graduated from high school, he attended Sarampore Christian College. And in college, um, he was so inquisitive, he would ask so many questions, uh, especially to the science teacher, about how does the body work and what's how does this function and what's going on here and you know what are how do the, how does the lungs and the liver and the gallbladder what do these things do and how do they work and and in desperation and frustration actually um, the teacher finally said look I can't answer your questions you really need to be going to medical school and so uh, so Priyanath said okay so he went into Calcutta, which is not too far away, to the major medical college and convinced the head of the college to allow him to attend classes. With the understanding that he didn't want to become a medical doctor, he just wanted to learn anatomy and physiology and biology and how all these things work. So he was allowed to, um, to monitor the classes to go to college, which he did for uh, almost two years. And then, um, and then his mother said that she really needed help with the business. So, uh, so he had to stop going to school and come home and start to take responsibility for helping out with the family, uh, which was just he and his mother. And so he started to work with the work with his mother and the family business, and it, he didn't really it didn't really take to that. He didn't really like that. It didn't work out so well. So his mother said, well, then you need to get a job and you need to get married. So <clears throat> as was traditional in, in is traditional in India, um, the parents would make arrangements um, for a mate for, the, for their child. And so uh, Priyanath was married to a woman from the community. And he, so he did that and he took a job and he took a job as a clerk, and he found that that really didn't suit him. He he didn't do well as a clerk because uh, the people in the in the office with him were wasting so much time and talking, and he would he would just get very frustrated. So so he didn't like being working as a clerk either. What he really liked was uh, checking out spiritual supposed uh, supposed spiritual teachers and yogis and miracle workers so he would go check them out whenever he heard of someone in town or someone he could get to um, that had some magical ability or some miraculous uh, ability and he would go and check them out see if they were real uh, you know figure out what was really going on so he had this kind of very analytical mind very inquisitive and he was just unstoppable he also uh, was apparently uh, extremely outgoing, gregarious, friendly, had a great sense of humor. Everybody liked to have him around. He was invited to uh, meetings and parties of the upper class in Sarampore. And, uh, and he had that kind of mind that when, he's, when he talked, people listened. They wanted to know his opinion about things. Even, you know, the doctors and lawyers and professional people that he was spending time with really had a respect for what he knew and, and for his opinions. And so he was, you know, very, 
very much accepted in the, the, the literate, educated um, part of Serampore society. Uh, he also loved music and uh, he learned to play the sitar and apparently uh, had mastered a few uh, offerings, a few songs on the sitar and was so good that his teacher would have him demonstrate, would have him play uh, for new people. So he was, and he, and he, at one point he said that he thought music should be a very important part of everyone's education. So he was, he was, uh, you know, we have a tendency to think about him as this strict, dour, um, you know, very rigid kind of person, but he was not, he was every, everything but. He was very entertaining, very easy to talk to. He could talk to anybody at any level of society about anything and he could talk with intelligence. So he was this kind of, you know, pretty amazing person. He had a child, he and his wife had a child, had a daughter. And when the daughter was still very young, his wife passed away. So he lost his wife and his daughter was already um, sent to um, live with her betrothed husband. So she was already um, set up to be married and so she was sent to the house where her future husband would be to live there. So Sri Yukteswar uh, had lost his wife. His daughter was being taken care of elsewhere. And so he was really free to be able to explore and do what he was interested in, which is, you know, exploring spirituality, learning from different teachers. Uh, he would go to this one and that one and find out what they were about learn what they had to share, techniques and procedures and philosophy. And when he found someone who was uh, a charlatan, he would expose them. But this was really what he loved. And he didn't do well working in an office or running a business. And so, so uh, his mother finally closed the family business down and he took responsibility for collecting the rent from the tenants. So he was a landlord. And this was basically how he uh, how he paid the bills and took care of himself and had enough money and enough time to be able to pursue his spiritual quest, his spiritual interests. And one day at a party at uh, you know a group meeting in Sarampur, uh he overheard some of his friends there talking about their amazing teacher, their amazing guru. And so he kind of, you know, he kind of got his attention. And so he asked, he said, well, who is this amazing teacher that you're going to? Who is this guru? And they said, oh, we can't tell you. We're not supposed to talk about it. And we can't talk about what we're doing. So, and he pressed them and then they were, you know, they stayed true to their instruction and they wouldn't tell him. So the only thing that he had gleaned and what he had overheard was that this fellow was in Benares. And so uh, he made arrangements to travel to Benares and then talked to people, knocked on doors, and eventually was able to track down Lahiri Baba and introduce himself and was accepted as a disciple. And so he began this relationship, this guru-disciple relationship with Lahiri Baba. Um, and Priyanath had been many times to Benares. This wasn't his first time. He was a regular visitor with uh, Trilinga Swami. Trilinga Swami is another great spiritual master who lives in Benares um, and is said to have been also very old, a couple of hundred years old, um, and a great, great yogi. So Priyanath had been coming and visiting him regularly for some time anyway. And so now he meets his, his guru, his Satguru, um, Lahiri Baba, and they begin a relationship. So often uh, Priyanath would come to Benares and sit with his master, learn from him, and then go back home to Calcutta and Sarampur and take care of the business. And so this relationship continued as long as Lahiri Baba was alive. Uh, once Lahiri Baba passed, then uh, Priyanat would come every year at the on the anniversary of his passing um, as a way of honoring uh, his guru, Lahiri Mahashaya. 
and he rented rooms uh, not far from where Lahiri Mahashaya's family home was. Uh, uh, Sri Yukteswar's rooms, uh, Priyanath's rooms, were right on the Ganges, actually looking out over the Ganges. And the Ghat place on Ganges that was next to or associated with his, the place that he was renting, where the rooms were, was directly next to Chausadi Ghat, which was where uh, Lahiri Mahashaya would come when he would go down each morning to bathe in the Ganges and do his ablutions and say his prayers. So, so they were very close and uh, Priyanath continued his relationship there by renting these rooms and eventually his mother wanted to retire uh, and move to Benares. Uh, is, uh, for many Hindus, it's very auspicious to go to Benares and this is the place to die, to make our transition. And so Priyanath had these rented rooms then in, uh, in Rana Mahal in Benares where his mother lived and where he would uh, conduct meetings and have programs when he was in town, which was uh, for three or four months every year. Uh, meanwhile, in, the family home back in Sarampur was converted into an ashram, um, Priyadam, and uh, and then he founded another ashram in Puri over on the ocean. Um, uh, and this was Karar Ashram. So he had three ashrams, Puri, Sarampur, and Benares. And he had planned on a fourth one up in Allahabad, up on the Ganges, um, but that never materialized. And for some time he had uh, his third ashram on Rana Mahal in his rented rooms. Uh, were conducted with his brother disciple, um, the saint with two bodies. Um, and so the two of them, Pranabhananda, and he um, had this ashram in his, in his rooms in Rana Mahal for a time. And so Sri Yukteswar, uh, unlike Lahiri Baba, uh, he uh, presented this to a larger audience. So he would have programs, seminars, teachings, classes. Uh, he and his uh, disciples started a little uh, magazine. They put a printing press together in, in uh, Priyadam and Sarampur um, and started to have a monthly bulletin, monthly little uh, magazine. And so in his way, he traveled and supported uh, study groups, studying uh, the Bhagavad Gita, studying the, the yoga that he had learned from Lahiri Baba, and also Vedic astrology. So he had become quite a masterful astrologer and along the way. And so he had program seminars, uh, workshops on Vedic astrology, on Bhagavad Gita, and on this yoga process. Um, to our knowledge, Lahiri Mahashaya never called what he was doing Kriya Yoga. He referred to it as Atman Yoga. Atman is the soul, the essence within us. And he said, I worship on the altar. I worship prana. This is life force energy. I worship prana on the altar of the spine through the chakras. So... Uh, so he didn't need external worship. He didn't need to go, you know, have uh, to go to temples. He didn't need to chant. He didn't need to do any rituals. He simply worshipped this internal process on the altar of the spine. And we'll talk more about that tomorrow. And so Sri Yukteswar helped to spread the word and to uh, make this Kriya Yoga process available to more and more folks all across the Ganges Plain all across North India. And then one of his disciples was Mukundalal Ghosh, who became Paramahansa Yogananda. And Mukundalal Ghosh was uh, not a precocious student. Unlike Lahiri uh, Baba and unlike Sri Yukteswar, he was not a very good student. He wasn't, he didn't really uh, like studying much, but he was very devotional, very spiritually oriented. He was a natural yogi from the time he was very young. Uh, when he was in high school, he and his friend would um, sneak out at night. Now, I remember being in high school and sneaking out at night, but he would sneak out at night, they would sneak out at night 
in order to go chant and meditate and read the Bhagavad Gita. That's not, it was never on my radar, I tell you. <laughs> so, and at, at, the, at the age of 15 in Calcutta, uh, he managed, he arranged to rent a little hut on the canal that was about a kilometer away from his house for one rupee per month. And he fixed it up, he whitewashed it inside and out, and created a little altar. And this became the Sadhana Mandir. This became their first little ashram, their first meeting place. And so he and his, his best friend, Manu Mahan Ma, uh, Mazumdar, who was living right across the street, a few years younger, and later became Swami Satchananda. So the two of them would meet together and have their little devotional services and other, their friends would come with them and others from the community. And so they had this little, uh, you know, amazing little temple that they were worshiping at. And after about a year, uh, a friend who lived just down the, down the block, around the corner, Tulsi Bose, uh, Tulsi Bose's father offered uh, a meeting room that was right there adjacent to his house. And so they, they moved their meetings from the Sadhana Mandir to Tulsi Bose's house, which was very close uh, and easy to get to for everybody, for all the kids and the friends. And so they continued there to have their meetings, their satsangas, their, their uh, spiritual uh, opportunities to chant and to meditate and to read the Bhagavad Gita. So this continued on. And... Um, Yogananda would travel often to um, Dakshineswar. Dakshineswar is really like a suburb. It's really on the outskirts of Calcutta. And Dakshineswar is where this big Kali temple was built in 1850-something. And uh, Sri Ramakrishna was installed there as the temple priest. And Sri Ramakrishna had become an enlightened soul, an amazing amazing consciousness and very much an inspiration for young Makunda. And so he would go and of course uh, Ramakrishna had passed many years before, but uh, Yogananda was so devotional and so uh, in tune and harmony with these devotional yogis that he would go often to visit the, the uh, Dakshineswar Kali temple and he would pray and he would meditate he would go to the little grove of trees. There's a little hut in a grove of trees next to the Ganges, where uh, it is said that Ramakrishna experienced his enlightenment. And so Yogananda loved to go and sit there and meditate. And he would bring his little brother, Sananta. He would bring uh, Manomahan. He, anybody that he could grab, he would bring. And they would go out and spend hours at the Kali temple. So this was very important and very uh, interesting aspect of his devotional nature. Very young. I mean, this is a high school kid. He also learned that uh, Master Mahashaya, Master Mahashaya was the individual who wrote the Gospels of Ramakrishna. So he was a devotee of Ramakrishna who um, sat in all of his discourses and then took notes and then wrote down everything that he said and created this amazing transcript of all the teachings of Ramakrishna. So he was also an educator, teacher, uh, and very, uh, very devotional individual, devotional to Ramakrishna, of course, and Divine Mother. And it turned out that he was uh, had started a small school and he, uh, of his own that was at 50 Amherst Street. That's only a few blocks away from Yogananda's family home, and so. Uh, so Yogananda would also make the journey, would walk over, you know, half an hour uh, walk to uh, visit Master Mahashaya many days. They said sometimes almost every day after school he would go and sit with Master Mahashaya, talk about this devo his devotion and Divine Mother and meditate together. And so this was the kind of individual that Mukunda, that Yogananda was when he was young. Um, and then when he graduated from high school, he had, he had tried to run away a couple times to become a yogi up in the mountains. And those, those uh, attempts were always thwarted. But um, eventually he made a deal with his father 
uh, father was very wealthy railway executive and his father said look if you go to school and graduate then after you graduate you can go and, and you know and try your yogi thing so so as soon as uh, yogananda graduated um he he uh made arrangements to enter college because this is what what you do you know this is what the young people do so he bought his books and signed up for college and um and very soon met a young swami young monk swami dayananda and this fellow was visiting calcutta and he was from benares and so he uh he was in charge of he wasn't the head the head but he was kind of the the person who was assigning things and kind of running the ashram at the time young um, but very devotional and yogananda just fell in love with him he said wow this is exactly what i want is to be this kind of devotional monk and so he made arrangements to uh, stop school and to go to Benares and father sort of reluctantly agreed and so Yogananda went off to Benares to join this ashram with Dayananda and a couple things happened number one uh, he found out that living in the ashram wasn't really what he had imagined it wasn't like being a, a yogi in a cave this was work I mean he had to get up and sweep the floor and you know help with the food and this and he had very little time to meditate and do what he really you know had this desire to do and then the other thing that happened is that yogananda's father mukunda's father um wasn't really happy with this arrangement from the beginning but the rest of the family was completely they they couldn't believe it they said this is not acceptable we <laughs> we need to have our our boy in college he needs to get a good degree so he can have a good job he needs to get married you know this is life and we it's, it's important and so uh so uh yogananda's father his brother in um sarampur lived in sarampur sarada ghosh um writes to to yogananda's father and says look we have to do something about this and i have a friend who's very grounded yogi you know he's a good a very good spiritual uh grounded brother disciple because yogananda's father and brother uh, sarada were both disciples of lahiri mahashaya and so they said we have a brother disciple and uh and he's in banaras right now and perhaps we can get him to look in on yogananda and to help get him to come back home and go to school and do the right thing so uh so sarada had written a letter to uh sri Yukteswar, who was this brother disciple and said uh you know we have uh, your our spiritual nephew here is uh in the uh in the ashram in benares and would you look in on him and see if there's any way that you could convince him to come back and finish his school and so they had that conversation and they wrote to Yogananda and they said, uh, you know, one of our spiritual brothers who's really quite remarkable, uh, you should meet this man. And so they arranged for a meeting and the meeting came together with Yogananda and Sri Yukteswar. Uh, Sri Yukteswar invited him to his rooms overlooking the Ganges and Rana Mahal. And there, after a conversation, Yogananda had uh, so much respect and so much of an, of an attunement with uh, Sri Yukteswar that he said would you be my guru would you be my teacher and Sri Yukteswar agreed uh, and, and asked Yogananda if he would follow his instructions and Yogananda agreed and so his first instruction was for Yogananda to go home and go back to school and get his degree and so and Yogananda resisted a little bit but he he finally did that he went back home signed up for college went through the two-year college in calcutta and then uh, uh went uh, then moved on to the uh, sarampore christian college that was near his guru and uh, was able to get his four-year degree there uh, it was a little challenging but he managed to see it through and then having uh, his guru now since he started college and 
So all through college, they continued to have meetings at the at the meet at the meeting place near Tulsi Bose's house, adjacent to Tulsi Bose's house. Shri Teswar would come once a week and I mean once a month and uh, facilitate programs that they would have there in the evening. They would have regular regular uh, meetings and they would come together and chant and study the Gita. And so this process continued through Yogananda's college years. And while he was in Sarampore, he would uh, spend quite a bit of time with his guru, of course. And so in this way, he, he made his way through, was able to graduate. And after graduation, um, not long after graduation, he and uh, his uh, uh, Manu Mahan and another uh, good friend of his that he had met in uh, college who became later uh, Swami Dirananda. So these folks you know, together started a little ashram and eventually started a school for a couple of children. It kind of came about, you know, as a graceful process where these kids weren't allowed to go to college, to go to school. And so, uh, so these young aspiring yogis took it on themselves to start teaching and were able to be kind of innovative. Yogananda had some very innovative ideas about education, also from his uh, guru, from Sri Yukteswar, and from his, uh, another uh, spiritual mentor of his, Madhuri Mahashaya, who lived uh, a block away, and he was said to be the levitating saint in the autobiography. And he was very big on education, felt it was very important. And so, so Yogananda helped to found this school and was encouraged to expand the school. And so together they approached the um, Maharaja of Mazumindar. And I'm sorry, uh, they, they approached the, the Maharaja and, and were able to uh, demonstrate to him what they had as far as their ideas went and so he agreed to help fund them. Now he had already been knighted by the British government for all the good work that he had done in funding schools, uh, elementary schools, high schools, and colleges. So he had a long history of being the supporter and uh, contributor to keeping this educational system together and so it was a natural for them to uh, to approach him and uh, he had just been knighted and so he was kind of in the newspapers and in public awareness and so it made sense to approach him and he liked what they were doing and made available his estate in Dahika uh, on the Damodar River uh, as their first school. And so, uh, so Yogananda and Satyananda and uh, Master Mahashaya, uh, who was his tutor, uh, together began this school with a few students at the Maharaja's uh, estate. And after a year, the school had grown. There were more and more students. And there was also a, a, a minor problem with a, a malaria or some disease that had spread around the area. And so they, they moved in order to be secure, safe and secure. And also to be in an area where there was more population. They were they had a, a larger population base to draw from. And so once again, the Maharaja um, allowed uh, Yogananda to, to have his school in Ranchi at another estate. And here they really, uh, the school really blossomed and grew and uh, became quite a remarkable um, uh, operation and continues to this day. So uh, they have, um, not not directly in Ranchi at the at the original school that's now an ashram, uh, but across the street on one side they have a school for girls that has 800 or a thousand students, and then nearby, not too far away in the countryside, there's another school which is for the boys, which has also 800 or a thousand students, and, and a college nearby. So they have quite a extensive educational. Uh, system going there, and then also educational uh, programs at the other ashrams around India that were that, that grew out of Yogananda's uh, presence and what he started.
And so then in 1920, uh, when the school was doing very well, growing very quickly, and they had a good administration, everything was in place, uh, Yogananda felt the call to come to America. He had been um, interested in coming to America, inspired by um, Swami Vivekananda and uh, Ramatirtha and some of these spiritual heroes. And so he wanted to come to this country and in 1920 was able to do that and came to Boston, uh, was invited to be a speaker at the uh, uh, Conference of Religious Liberals and, and then stayed, stayed in America and after a couple of years began lecturing and traveling around the country and um, with the help of some promoters and, uh, and good fortune was able to build a substantial ministry, finally settled in Southern California and created the Self-Realization Fellowship. And then as we all know, uh, Mr. Davis met him in 1949 and here we are. So this is just a little, little bio, little information about our teachers and our tradition and this lineage that we are part of. And each one has learned directly from the one before him, has applied what he has learned, and has become a master, literally mastered um, in consciousness, the teaching, in order to be able to share this with us.